It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today, our guest, Terry Tempest Williams, will take us on a tour of our national parks. She says our national parks are more than scenery. They are portals and thresholds of wonder, an open door that swings back and forth from our past to our future. She quotes photographer Paul Strand as saying, this something we call America lives not so much in political institutions as in its rocks and skies and seas. Besides the unparalleled beauty of them, public lands have a tumultuous history. It involves original peoples, the ecology, the politics, and the natural resources that are part of them. It's Terry's hope that we learn what it is to offer our reverence and respect to the closest thing that we have to sacred lands. Terry Tempest Williams is a naturalist, environmentalist, and award-winning author. In 2014, on the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act, Ms. Williams received the Sierra Club's John Muir Award honoring a distinguished record of leadership in American conservation. She is currently the Annie Clark Tanner Scholar in Environmental Humanities at the University of Utah. Her many books include Refuge, an Unnatural History of Family and Place, Red, Patience and Passion in the Desert, When Women Were Birds, and the Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. She and her husband, Brooke Williams, divide their time between Castle Valley, Utah and Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Join us for the next hour as we explore the relevance of our national parks in the 21st century and how might these public commons bring us back home to a united state of humility with our guest, Terry Tempest Williams. I'm Justine Willis Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Terry, welcome. Justine, it's such a pleasure to sit with you. There's no one I respect more in this world, and I just appreciate um, the consciousness that you have brought to each of us as your listeners and friends. Oh, thank you so much. And I just right back at you. I'm I was so excited that we were able to arrange this time while you were here mm. on the uh, West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I just, I'm very excited about your new book. I'm excited about all your books. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, this one, this one really encompasses so much of what you are about. And I know you have stated in the introduction and in some of your talks that 
you thought, oh, this one is going to be fun because it's just going to be such a breeze. I'm just going to have so much fun. But as you got into it, it it turned into something else as, as you delved into the history of our national parks. Can you say something about that? I wasn't prepared for the complexities. I wasn't prepared for the real shadow side of our national parks as well as the illumination of them. As you say, I think I, was, I just thought, finally, I get to you know, really be in the heart of joy. And maybe that is true because I think we don't know joy unless we've moved through those shadow parts. And, you know, I think the thing that that was the surprise for me, you know, we both love Wallace Stegner and I, I certainly consider him a mentor. And as Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan have stated, you know, that he said our American national parks are our best idea. And I would argue that they are our evolving idea. And that's the way that I began to follow these strands of history and biology and displaced people and our need to diversify our national parks, and that it's never one story, but many stories that are rooted in these American landscapes. So when when you say evolving, it's not like, okay, we've established a park. There is Yosemite Valley or Yellowstone National Park, let's say. And so now it's just set. We've got it. It's all neatly packaged. Right. History done. Over. Enjoy. But not quite. Give us a view of that. Well, I think, you know, what we're celebrating as a country, the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. And what's interesting to me is when you think about 1916, you had the first director, Stephen T. Mather. He was a man of means, a wealthy man, millions. He received his wealth. He earned his wealth um, from borax, 20 mules strong. And his primary concern with Yosemite was, would Mrs. Astor have a comfortable place to stay? And built the Awani Motel, named after the very Native people that were displaced. A hundred years later, as we know, the Awani Hotel, a landmark for so many, especially in the Bay Area, around the world, um, is now in legal dispute, the name Awani. Therefore, it has been removed from the hotel and it is now the Majestic. You know, that's one example because of trademarks. You know, there's an evolving idea. Um, you look at a hundred years later, we have a black president, Barack Obama, a community organizer, in 2012, creates a new national monument honoring another community organizer, Cesar Chavez, in Keene, California, La Paz, you know, really the home ground of the United Farm Workers. I love that. You know, to me, we've, we've really looked at our big Western parks like Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, Grand Teton, Canyonlands. And now we're really looking at parks that, that create a contemporary history, a more diverse history. And I find that very moving. Another example very close to my heart would be the Bears Ears National Monument being proposed by Native people in my home country, which is in Utah, Four Corners area, 
You have uh, the Navajo, the Diné, the Hopi, the Zuni, and the two Ute uh, tribes that are saying, we want two million acres protected because these lands hold our histories, where our ceremonies are, the bones of our ancestors are laid, where our medicines are found. And this is, these are lands adjacent to Canyonlands National Park. Many of our listeners will know these lands as Grand Gulch, um, Slickhorn Canyon, um, Owl Canyon. And I'm hoping, we are all hoping, that the president is listening to these native voices. What's unique about this is all of these tribes are coming together. Exactly. I think over 20 tribes are coming that's together. Right. That's that's, an, that's that's unheard of. And they've made pilgrimages to Washington. They've been talking to um, individuals in the Department of Interior, in the White House. And there is such solidarity. It is so deeply moving. And then you have... Our I, governor. I, I want to say yeah. something about that before we go on, yes. because um, other we, we can be of help. Yes, I mean we can. This is what you do. You you write letters. You advocate. You you stand on the barricades. You you have shown this over and over and over again, and we can be of help in this particular instance. And I want to give a website. Because I think it's really important That's that Thank our, you. our voice is heard as far as this incredible coming together and this idea of setting aside. Well, it could be such a healing um, for the tribes, the United States government, and certainly the Park Service. And when you talk about, you know, when we're saying that this is an evolving idea, here's an example. So, yes, these are public lands. And a governor like we have, um, Governor Herbert in Utah with Rob Bishop, our congressman, they they are articulating to the White House that if this were to occur, that there would be violence along the order of the Bundys that we saw at the Malheur uh, National Wildlife Refuge. I think that's unconscionable Yes, that yes. they are threatening this. And it's, again, this unleashed racism— and so as citizens, we can make a difference, and we can let our voices be known, and we can support the tribes in this very dynamic, powerful, spiritual so I proposal. Wanna, I want to give the website. It's bearsearscoalition.org slash action. So bears ear, like the bear, like grizzly bear, right. ears, hearing, ears, E-A-R-S, bears Ears right, and it's coalition. this beautiful uh, volcanic formation on the horizon when you're in that part of, of southern Utah, just outside Blanding, Utah. So it looks like the ears of it the really bear. It really does. Bearsearscoalition.org. So if anybody is interested in making a statement and, and supporting this action. It's talking about land on a very, very different level, a level I can't even begin to understand. Uh, one of the spiritual leaders, Jonah Yellowman, came to our home um, last year, uh, met with some of our students. We were anticipating his arrival. And when he came to our porch, Justine, coyotes started howling. This was at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning in November. That just doesn't happen. He entered. He sat down. 
the whole weather system of our home shifted, and he began offering prayers in Navajo, and then he repeated it in English. And then he met the students with such depth and regard and began talking about how important it is to find one's purpose. And then he began to tell a story about how he came to know his power as a medicine person. And one of our students said, but aren't you telling us too much? And he said, no, I am being instructed that this is what you need to know. And he talked about these things. And then all at once he said, let us go outside now. We walked outside in Castle Valley, Utah, surrounded by red rocks. We turned east and there, rising above Adobe Mesa and Castleton Tower was a horizontal rainbow. I have never seen that in my entire life. And I turned to Jonah and I said, do you see this often? And he said, no. And I said, what does it mean? And he said, the twins have been with us. I'm here with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to our website, coyoteclan.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. Terry, um, I would love for you, this is a personal story on, on your part, which, I, which was a surprise to you. I know that you live out west. The desert is very much a part of your life. But you really have enjoyed for many, many years going to Maine to the... Um, Akeda National Park. And so you've been visiting there for a while, very lush and green and very different from the desert. But it was a surprise to you that there was another attraction there that unbeknownst to you. Can you talk about that ancestral attraction? Yes. You know, Maine couldn't be more different than Utah, right? <laughs> On a physical level. Um, politically, it's another story, but, uh, you know, Maine is everything Utah is not. Maine is green. Maine is lush. Maine has water, uh, not desert. And my uncle, Richard Tempest and Ruth Tempest, 
um, in the early 80s, were called on a mission for the Mormon Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Maine was part of their so-called territory. So while they were in church proselytizing, my cousin and I would take the car and we would go down east and go to every single rocky shore we could think of. And we spent a great deal of time in Acadia National Park, which is so beautiful. And it's one of the most visited national parks in the country. And our family has a little place there and it's become very dear to all of us. And I thought that was that. Well, I was teaching a course on memoirs at the University of Utah. And I thought, you know, just because I've had a bad experience with genealogy growing up, thinking I really don't need to know any more of my ancestors and four generations, which you had to recite on call. I thought that doesn't mean that I should bias my students. So we went to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Genealogical Library, world famous. We walked in, there was a wonderful speaker, Reverend Martin, African-American, Native American roots. And she stood up and said, you may think you're here to listen to what I have to say. Not true. You're here because you have been called by one of your ancestors and they have something to tell you. And you better figure out what that is. She gave her speech. She ended it and she said, go find your story. So I said to my students, all right, four hours, find your story, find your ancestor, let's come back and we'll talk. I was not immune. I sat down at the computer and I closed my eyes and I thought, all right, all right, dear ancestor, who are you? And what came into my mind was Cynthia Celestial Bunker. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> I typed her name in. She was my grandmother, Letty Romney Dixon's grandmother. She was the mother of Valate Lee Romney. And so she would have been my great, great grandmother. I knew her name. I loved her name. I put it in the computer, typed it in, voila. Every ancestor on my matrilineal line was from Maine. Not only from Maine, but the very county that our family has a little camp. And not only that, but almost the exact site. And I thought, is that what I have been feeling all of these years? It's, it's been my secret. And so I started, that's not true. I just sort of buried it. You know, it was, it was almost, I don't know, I just didn't even want to think about it. And then when I started thinking about these national parks and our different connections to it, the surprising stories, the complexities, I started to unravel this story. And what I found was that most of my ancestors were buried on Cranberry Island, um, just across the way from Acadia National Park on Mount Desert. And this is where my kin are from. It became even more interesting because we only have one photograph of her. She's without question racially ambiguous. And it was there I started to do some math and realized that her mother, Emily Abbott Bunker, must have had an affair with a freed slave in Ogden, Utah, 
of which there were 59 helping to build the railroad, while her husband, Edward Bunker, was on a mission in Scotland. She was born. Well, he comes home. He must have seen she was pregnant. He takes a 14-year-old girl as a wife. They move south to southern Utah, to Dixie, St. George. Cynthia Celestial Bunker is born in southern Utah on the way, and in his journal I found this. uh, Emily's daughter, not our daughter, Emily's daughter was born in this particular community, um, Tapitz, which means black in Paiute language. Interesting. So it was all written in code. And And again, it's what no one in our family discussed it. Right. And and all of this comes from that deep listening, like when you heard that lecture and they said, you are here to hear your ancestors. And, right. And so and that's part of what you really bring, Terry. You bring such a deep listening besides uh, our own lineages that you've just recited here. It's it's a listening to the land itself, listening to the wind, listening to to what the animals, listening to the tracks of animals, uh, listening, listening, listening. That's that seems to be a theme that really runs through this whole volume here and and your life. Can you say something about that listening? Well, certainly the wind was the common denominator to all of these national parks and monuments, whether it was Gettysburg, whether it was Acadia, whether it was Canyonlands, Big Bend, Gates of the Arctic, even Alcatraz, effigy mounds, uh, your home ground in Alabama and Louisiana, in the Gulf Islands, National Seashore, wind, light, water. All of those played and bounced off each other. And I think it, it heightens our sense of listening because there is such a depth of stillness in these public lands. Um, and I think we're so used to all the noise and the distractions and the chaos around us that we become immune to it. Um, and, you know, I was thinking when we were at the genealogy library, talk about listening to our ancestors every one of those students came back with an extraordinary story. And I think that's very much tied to our national parks because our national parks are places of genealogy, not just our species' genealogies, but natural histories that, that cut through time. And again, it's that, that place of humility. And you talked about, you know, how do we find a United States of humility, a united state of humility, when on so many levels uh, the Civil War has never ended, that we are in this deeply fractured, divided country. I think if we could listen more to each other, we would find a compassion that um, would surprise us. I'm thinking, too, that in as you describe these places where we live in a cacophony of noise and images that are just coming at us all the time. Uh, Not natural images, but images, uh, advertisements and that sort of thing. 
And and so when when we get to a wilderness area or a park, there's a kind of silence that allows us right. to begin to listen in a new way. And I, I'm thinking of a story that you told about um, you were down at Big Bend National Park down in, this is in southern Texas on the Mexican border. And uh, there was a man who had driven there. He was from London. Yes. And he had driven there from uh, Austin. Right. And you met him on, on the way. And why was he there and what did he ha- discover? It was so moving. And again, we go to a national park and stories. People bring their stories. Our national parks are memory palaces. This gentleman had been at an international convention in Austin. He decided that he wanted to come to Big Bend. He'd heard about it. He loved the national parks. He drove for, I don't know, eight hours crazily and made this, you know, big hike. And we met him actually on the summit. And he was so moved by the absolute spaciousness before him that was not just in one country, but two countries. We were looking into Mexico on the south. We were looking into the United States and Texas, you know, um, to the north. And he just said, how marvelous that someone had the foresight to protect these lands for all time, for all people, forever. And he just started weeping and saying, I cannot wait to go home so that I can tell my daughters there is a place where your eyes can stretch uninterrupted. That my eyes, he said, could just see beyond the horizon. He said, I didn't know that. He said, you know, in London, all it is is people, people, people. I think he said, there's nine million of us. He said, I don't think I've had a conversation with myself until today. That's what these national parks bring to us, is a deep sense of of who we are, who we're not, what it means to be human in place with other species. I'm I'm reminded of the E.O. Wilson thought, uh, the biologist uh, who who said... um, that we need to set aside half of our lands in wilderness. I mean, that seems like such an outrageous thing, but for our own sanity, for our inclusion with all the other species that we share this precious planet with, for all of that, it, it, it isn't outrageous if you think of it in terms of that. I love his new book called Half Earth, where he speaks about that, just as you say, that if we as a species are going to survive and thrive along with other species, then it will require half the earth to be wild. I had the privilege of of speaking with him um, a couple of months ago, and, you know, I thanked him for his idea and for being so forceful about it, and he said, you know... I Googled, I just wanted to know, is this idea taking root? And he said, I Googled Wilson Half Earth, those three words, push the button and voila, 70 million marks. What do you call it? 
uh, hits, uh, you know, references. references. Right. And he said, something is happening. Something is happening. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams. She is the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Typography of America's National Parks. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams. Her newest book is called The Hour of Land, A Personal Typography of America's National Parks. I just want to mention, I, I have to mention this because when when you look at the book, when when you all go to your bookstore to get this just incredible volume, um, you'll notice that there's a little tiny wrapper kind of around it that says the hour of land. But this wrapper will will soon come off and, and actually probably get lost. And what will remain is is the the cover, the front cover and the back cover of the book, which is El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. And the back cover is is a picture of of the moon. Moving across the sky with the lens of the camera open. So you have this wonderful, it almost looks like a laser uh, moving through a circle in the Grand Canyon. What I love about the front and back of this book, Justine, is that after the belly band falls off, um, you're left with the land itself. And on the cover, you have Carlton Watkins' image from 1860 of El Capitan, as you say. And on the back, you have a contemporary image from Ansley Rivers West, who's a young ph- photographer from Georgia uh, who was taking these pictures, these photographs, uh, on a trip down the Colorado River. Uh, for the first time, beautiful photographer. So I love that you have both the 20th century and the 21st century in conversation and with each there's other. there's no title on the cover or or no blurb on the back. It's just a bit, no no author or anything. We just wanted the it land. Just, it just, there it is. And so you know, beautifully stated. It will survive us, and we don't need blurbs and comments and titles and names. Right. Right. Um, I just wanted the land itself as a reminder of what sustains us. Two of the uh, parks that you mention in the book, one is the um, Gulf States, um, uh, Gulf Island National Seashore in Florida and Mississippi and and, uh, Louisiana, Alabama, that whole Gulf Shores. And and that's tied in also with the Canyonlands. That's what's going on. We're talking about oil and gas uh, production and and pulling these resources out. And I know one of the people that you mentioned that has done just incredible work and uh, an incredible eco-warrior, Tim DeChristopher. So can you say something or even read something? 
Tim to Christopher is is a hero, and he is an eco warrior, and I think most importantly, he is a deeply spiritual human being. And it's a well-known story, as you know. In two thousand eight, um, he was at a BLM auction sale in Salt Lake City. It was snowing. Just for those people who don't know, Bureau of Land Management. There you go. Okay. And he went inside. It was snowing. There was a protest sponsored by Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. They asked him if he was there to bid on these lands, and he thought, why, yes. Signed in, went inside. He was bidder 70. He had a paddle. And as he watched these lands leased for $2 an acre, lands adjacent to Canyonlands National Park, Arches National Park, he became so incensed that he began bidding them up to fair market value until he had purchased uh, a bid on $1.8 million worth of leases. Um, and they stopped the, the auction. He said this was an act of civil disobedience, that it was harming his future, his generation, uh, in terms of climate, and it became a long saga that eventually landed him in federal prison for two years with three years of parole. He is now a graduate student in the Harvard Divinity School, and I think he is one of our most powerful voices on on behalf of climate change. Uh, It is related to the BP oil spill that took place in 2010, two years later, that affected Louisiana, Alabama, the whole Gulf Coast. Um, I was sent there on assignment by Orion Magazine. We were there on day 100. And nothing could have prepared me for what I saw, Justine. You know, the front page of the New York Times above the fold to the right said, you know, the oil is, is cleaned, cleaned up. Nature did it. End of story. And I went out with an incredible um, Tom Hutchings uh, pilot, barefoot pilot, and we were maybe only 800 feet above um, ground zero at the Macondo Well. For as far as we could see, for as long as we could bear it, all that we witnessed was oil. It was almost like slow-moving ripples. Um, the ocean looked like the stretched skins. What is it? The the stretch marks of a of a pregnant woman's belly. I mean, it just it was such. Only it was a perversion. It was like no white caps or anything. No, it was, it was just, just this, this slow, this slow lazy, undulating stretched marks that were yeah. um, all oil. Written. And I think that you mentioned that you started to see this, I mean, even as much as 32 miles out. The scale you could not believe. And you think, who benefits by saying it's over? And I think it was on that day that I really quit reading the New York Times, you know, because I just thought I can't trust it. And on July 2nd, 2015, the oil giant... BP announced an $18.7 billion settlement to be made to the federal, state, and local claims against them for damages incurred because of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. But it just felt like it was too little too late. But, but you know, I'm still in touch with many of the people that I met 
um, Becky Duway, one of them, who is a beautiful Cajun woman that that lives in Louisiana. She lost her business. She lost her health. She now has a lifetime on chemotherapy. There are no claims that can meet her needs. Exactly. And even you, when when at some point you described um, uh, going through a decontamination uh, facility of some sort. and Yeah, the whole thing was just so um, sinister. And this isn't about being paranoid. This is just what happened. You know, the governor of Louisiana said the beaches are open. So we took him at his word. We went down to Grand Isle. We started walking along the beaches. The waves would break, and you would see dead fish rolling through the waves. Um, the stench was so severe. Our eyes were watering. Our feet were, were black with oil. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, these men from Blackwater, they were contract uh, security men, uh, said, you have no right to be here. And we said, actually, we do. The governor said, you know, the beaches are open. We were then corralled, there were three of us, and taken to a BP decontamination unit, um, told to stand in a plastic kiddie pool with God knows what contaminants we had to step through. Then we were asked for our name, our number, our social security number. We were filmed. You know, it's all about intimidation. Yeah. And and then there we started hearing stories from the workers who were in hazmat suits. Um, but what about the people? You know, what about the pelicans? What about Becky Duway and her family who were sitting on their porch when they were told everything was fine and they were sprayed with dispersants? Widespread. And often that's done under the cover of night or something. It was night, and it was Coast Guard uh, planes, and none of this is is really marked or tracked or or known um, by the general public. But these are the stories that don't get told. These are stories that are tied to our national parks. And, um, you know, at some point my publisher said this isn't, the book we wanted. Oh. And it certainly wasn't the book I thought I was going to write. Right. But again, these are the varied stories. And so often it's it's the displaced people, native people, it is poor people, it is um, other species that are not given the dignity that they deserve. Really? All in the name of, I will say, I, development or government rules and regulations that favor economics over ecological and human health. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, I, I'm thinking of um, the the time that you were um, going to Glacier, I guess, you and your family, and you, you ended up in just in that terrible, terrible fire, trapper fire, uh, that... Yeah, it's just an incredible story. People will have to pick up the book to really read, read the whole thing. But you point out that so vividly I, that 
The broken promises to original people, to the native peoples of these lands. The Blackfoot people um, in Glacier, they were told that they would have access to their hunting rights, um, that these were their lands, not a problem. And the minute it was made a national park, they were banished. A hundred years later, now they too are asking, rightfully so, for co-governance. You will see on the border of Glacier National Park and the Canadian Waterton National Parks, an international peace park, you will see the Canadian flag, you will see the United States flag, and you will now see the Blackfoot flag. That's right. That's you know, right. So again, this evolving story. The other evolving story is that of climate change. So I was seeing that in 1938, there was this pamphlet on Glacier National Park put out by the government. It's wonderful. It um, talks about, you know, the the ramparts of, of these mountains um, in Glacier. Sixty glaciers were noted at that point. Today, 15. So the very park that is named after Glacier, in the next 15 to 30 years, the scientists are saying there will be no more glaciers because of climate. The absolute perfect storm that our family found ourselves in, in 2003, when we were at Granite Park Chalet for my father's 70th birthday, we were taken as dead. There were, I think, 23 of us in that chalet, and two fires were roaring, merged, and as we were told to be inside uh, with the children in the center, that the oxygen would be swept out of the the chalet, and would roar over us. Hopefully we would make it. Uh, we thought we would die as well. But miraculously, the the fires went around the chalet and uh, up swift current pass. Climate change, that's my point. Um, extreme fires, extreme drought, glaciers melting. Evolving story. I'm here with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Typography of America's National Parks. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Terry Tempest Williams, and she's the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. How many national parks do we have we in have the U.S.? We have 58, 59, um, and I say that because I'm not quite sure. We just, Pinnacles in California is the latest one, um, and there's 408 national park units, which include national parks and monuments. But out of our national parks, think of that. 
40 are threatened by oil and gas development. Theodore Roosevelt National Park would be one of them, Glacier National Park, Grand Teton, Yellowstone, Canyonlands, Arches, you know, the Alaskan Park, certainly um, the Arctic National Wildlife Monument, hopefully will become a monument, the refuge. Uh, Louisiana, I mean, I could go on and on. Twelve of our national parks already have oil and gas development inside them with another 30 pending. That's the story that nobody hears. And I think that's really crucial to us as citizens. And the question I keep asking is, do we have the respect and the restraint to say no? In the same way, do we have the respect and restraint to say, no, we do not want corporate sponsors inside our national parks? For the reason you brought up in the beginning, it is a place of peace, of rest, of listening, of stillness, not to be bombarded by McDonald's sponsoring Arches National Park. So these are the questions that are before us. Terry, I I would love for you to share a a story. Uh, You have so many beautiful stories within this book. You, You really cover the gamut, the ecology, the the wonder, the awe, the uh, the beauty, and and then the complexity and the history and the the deception and how these many of these parks were formed in different ways if they were formed. But I'd love for you to tell the story of going back to your childhood. Part of your class went up to the caves. Well, I think there's just so much joy in our national parks, and largely they're tied to family, to traditions. Uh, And, you know, I think one of the starting points for me was I was seven, eight years old, um, Mormon primary. It's a school for children, so to speak, religious training. We hiked up to Mount Timpanogos Cave, which is a national monument, met by a park ranger. Our primary teacher let us in. There were 12 of us. We walked up on the risers and the temperature dropped. Uh, You saw stalagmites, stalactites registering his teeth. We walk up on the riser, um, feeling all the moisture around us inside the heart of the mountain, literally. And we walk through the Valley of Sleep, Father Time's jewel box. We were all raised with this story that This was a Ute maiden. Um, Inside the mountain was her beating heart. And if we could see that beating heart, she would rise again. We're walking through. I keep thinking, where's the heart? Where's the heart? Is it beating? We turn the corner. There it is. The great heart of Timpanogos. Um, I'm obsessed. If I touched it, would it register as hot or cold? What I didn't realize is the students are ahead you know, the children with the primary teacher, the light goes off, the door slams, I'm alone. I don't know, I don't know how long I was in there, Justine, but what I do know is that I felt that beating heart, not just mine, but that heart of the mountain. And I think for the rest of my life, I have been searching for that moment when you're part of something so old, so deep, so true that when finally the lights went back on, I lost that 
that spiritual depth. And I think for the rest of my life, I've been trying to retrieve that, that sacred space I felt inside that mountain alone. So it's like a guiding star for you. It is. And, you know, every time I pass Timpanogos Mountain or Timpanogos Cave or go back up there, I think that's where that unseen world resides. And that's what our national parks give us. Every time I enter a national park, I meet the miraculous. And maybe I could close with with a story. I would love that, please. And I would say, perhaps this is the beginning of ceremony. It is time to weep and sing, wrote W.H. Auden. At a low ebb of hope, I asked my friend Doug Peacock how he staves off despair. This is the man who kept a map of Yellowstone in the back pocket of his fatigues throughout the war and would unfold it at night to keep insanity at bay. Insulate yourself with friends and seek out wild places, he said, which is exactly what I was doing, seeking out my friend on the other side of Yellowstone on the day we learned that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had denied wolverines protection under the Endangered Species Act. While driving from Jackson Hole to Livingston, Montana, I was listening to Vivaldi's Four Seasons, recomposed by the musician Max Richter. I love this piece of music, and I love the story behind it. Richter's favorite piece of music was Vivaldi's Four Seasons. He had played it as a musician hundreds of times and had heard it many more times than he had performed it. But the strangest thing started to occur. The Four Seasons had become so commercialized, so trivialized, played in elevators and as the soundtrack for cheap commercials, that he could no longer hear its beauty. It had become lost to him, demoted to musical wallpaper. Max Richter did the unthinkable. He reimagined Vivaldi's masterpiece and recomposed it so it could be heard once again at this moment in time. He added the bass notes. He said the Four Seasons is something we all carry around with us. It's everywhere, Richter said. In a way, we stopped being able to hear it. So this project was about reclaiming this music for me personally. I wanted to fall in love with it all over again, he said. By getting inside that music and rediscovering it for myself, I was able to take a new path through a well-known landscape. I was listening to the Four Seasons recomposed as I was en route to Doug. My mind was moving toward reverie with the music. It was exactly what I needed to recompose myself as I was driving through Yellowstone to Montana, inspiring me to reimagine everything, including our national parks. Our institutions and agencies are no longer working for us. It is time to reimagine our churches, our universities, the wilderness movement as a movement of direct action. Time to reimagine our public lands as sanctuaries, refuges, and sacred lands. Time to rethink what is acceptable and what is not. I was lost in the music. And then, as I was driving through the Hayden Valley, the cars in front of me came to an abrupt halt. Bison Jam. 
hundreds of bison not only crossing the road, but walking alongside us. I was now to crawl, barely going five miles per hour. I rolled down my window, still listening to the Four Seasons, with a volume louder than I realized. The bison started moving closer to my car. I started getting nervous, thought about rolling up the window, but then I began noticing the bison turning their heads toward the music, walking even closer to the car. I imagined they were enjoying Vivaldi as I was, relaxing as I was, as we listened to the music together for close to a mile, all of us slowly moving down the road. I was late to Doug's house. He was waiting. I brought him a nice French Bordeaux. We took the bottle and two glasses outside with a view of Paradise Valley. Doug had written a plea on the Wolverine's behalf a week before. It was published online in the Daily Beast. He had received a note from his editor, Chris Dickey, the son of the poet James Dickey. I'm sorry, Chris said. Perhaps this poem from my father will help. Under a thunderous sky with bolts of lightning adding punctuation, Doug and I read for the last Wolverine out loud to each other, alternating between stanzas with tears streaming down our cheeks. The final lines undid us. Alone with maybe some dim racial notion of being the last, but none of how much your unnoticed going will mean, how much the timid poem needs the mindless explosion of your rage, the glutton's internal fire, the elk's heart in the belly sprouting wings, the pact of the blind swallowing thing with himself, to eat the world and not to be driven off it until it is gone even if it takes forever. I take you as you are and make of you what I will, skunk bear, carcajoy, bloodthirsty non-survivor. Lord, let me die, but not die out. Doug and I raised our glasses to the mountains, black clouds billowing all around us as a swath of red clouds turned pink. To Wolverine, Doug said. And then he turned to me with tears in his eyes. We lose nothing by loving. Terry, thank you so much for being with us today. I love you, Justine. I love you, too. Thank you for all your work, all your inspiration, all your travels that you've shared with us through the years. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, coyoteclan.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3587. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio and Media in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can find nearly a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our archive and many other resources. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. 
Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drazen. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer, supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, and thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, to become a member of Friends of New Dimensions, or to purchase downloadable copies of this and many other New Dimensions programs, visit our website, newdimensions.org. Or you can reach us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.